All right. Well, it's always, um, I've been enjoying, I don't know about you all, but I have been enjoying Pastor John's series on Romans incredibly much. And it's been a huge blessing to me as I walk with Jesus through the weeks. Um, And so it's always, it's never a small thing when Pastor John asks me to give him a bit of a break so he could go away this week, have time with the family. And um, when he does that, I always stop and ask, you know, what it would be that the Lord would have me to share. And so this past week, as I was praying about that, I asked Pastor John and Kyle um, about different ideas that I had. And uh, (coughs) they both encouraged me to begin a series with you for whenever God gives me these opportunities, we will continue in this series for a while. And um, it's a series I'm very excited to share with you. It's a series that, again, if you don't like it, you can blame Kyle and Pastor John. (laughs) But um, actually, it's a great pleasure to do this. Um, I want to share over the times that we have together as God gives opportunity Um, some biblical principles that we can all use in the area of solving the problems that we're facing. These principles were first shared with me by a pastor named Marlon Hardman when I was two years old in the Lord. And um, over the 40 years that I've known Christ, these principles, five of them, that we'll go through over however many times God gives us, Over the 40 years I've known Christ, these principles have been tremendous help to me and to many others in approaching and solving their problems in a way that is honoring and pleasing to God. So I'm really excited to share them with you. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 has as its theme the word of God in the heart. And turn to verse 89. Verse 89 is one of those great verses that in a verse says everything. Verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Forever. The time that really counts. O Lord, the person that really counts. Thy word, the commodity that really counts, is settled. The decision that really counts forever. The time that really counts. So I invite you to turn with me this morning in this word that really counts and that is settled forever in the place that really counts. To James chapter 1. And we'll begin there in a minute, but before we do, let me pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give me the strength this morning to speak your truth boldly. I pray that um, we would all together see Jesus this morning more clearly, and as a result, love him more dearly and serve and honor him more faithfully. 
And uh, Lord, may you be pleased with what we meditate on this morning. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight this morning. Amen. Well, let's begin. Problems and how to solve them. Have you ever had a problem? Now, I'm not talking about an algebra problem or a geometry problem or a calculus problem, if you're Roy, who's worked on calculus a lot. But I'm talking, when I talk about a problem here, I'm talking, have you ever had a difficult situation that's getting the best of you? That's what we're talking about. I know of a fellow once who saw a sign going under an underpass in Washington, D.C., he said, the sign said, I'm in a rat race, and the rats are winning. And uh, I don't know, I don't know if you've ever felt that way, but there have been times where I've felt that way. And uh, perhaps you're even here today and you feel that way. Well, if you've got a problem that's getting the best of you today, this morning, cheer up, because there's an answer to that problem. You see, problems are not to be avoided by Christians by those that follow Christ. Problems are for solving. And we'll never be able to grow in our relationship with the Lord Jesus and serve him effectively and honor him and make much about him until we first get our viewpoint on our problems and how God wants to solve them. You know, I'm convinced that his word is a very practical book. Someone once called it the manufacturer's handbook. And you all know that story, especially if you're wives here, because that reminds every wife here of the story of how you got a new appliance and you brought it home and presented it to your spouse. And uh, he he began to put it together and it didn't quite, wasn't quite coming together. And what did you say? You said, hey, look at the manual, the directions, right? To which the husband says, no, I've got this, right? And then you see how that goes. Well, you know, in a real way, there are many of us, myself included, who as believers, we treat God the same way. I'm on my way now, Lord. Thanks for a good start. I can handle it from here. If I get in trouble, I'll call. And we don't consult the manufacturer's handbook. And things get messy. And so what I want to do in these messages over time, as God gives us opportunity with you, is unpack five biblical principles that can be used by any believer in any culture at any time to approach and solve their problems biblically in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord and that will help us all go grow in God's grace and knowledge. But before we go and before we jump into those five principles, there's a couple of introductory things we need to do. First of all, I want to establish some basic facts with you about what the Bible has to say about problems generally. Okay? 
So, the Bible basically defines problems as testings, trials, temptations, or sufferings. Anytime you're reading through the scriptures and you see one of those words, you could substitute the word problem and you'd still get a pretty faithful rendering of the text. When you don't often see the word problem used in the scripture, but you see those words used. And those are problems, testings, trials, temptations, or sufferings. The Bible says there are two basic types of problems that you and I will face as believers, as followers of Christ. First, the first kind, there are problems, it says, that I bring upon myself as a consequence of disobedience. And James talks about that in his great letter that you all are already at in James chapter 1. Let me get there with you since I gave you guys a head start. James chapter 1. And it's verse, let me look again, because I don't think that's right. Chapter 1, verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, he is, when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It says, let no one say when I'm tempted or when I have a problem come into my life, God did it. God made me sin. God made me that way. Ever hear that? Great Christian evangelical cop-out. Oh, God made me that way. Many people say exactly that. You see, it's, it's not my fault. It's not my fault that I have this problem. God made me this way. No, James says, God doesn't cause any one of us to sin. It's very clear. God does not cause anyone to sin. Rather, it says, we are drawn away from God into disobedience by our own passionate cravings and appetites. The word for that, the biblical word for that is lust. It's what a lust is. It's a passionate craving or appetite. And those lusts, those passionate cravings or appetites, James says, they draw us away from obedience to the Lord. And you see, lust is appetite run wild. And it has not only to do with sexual stuff, sexual immorality and stuff, You see, because you can lust after all kinds of different things. You can have a passionate craving for all kinds of different things. Food, popularity, position, success, clothes, a different type of body, hair. You know, you can lust after all kinds of stuff. You see, there are lots of things we can lust after, And there are problems, the Bible says, that come upon us when we allow those lusts, those appetites, to draw us into disobedience to the Lord and to his word. That's the first kind of problems. The problems that come upon us because we're drawn away into disobedience. The second kind 
Our problems are things that God permits, perhaps even often directs into our lives in order to minister to us. Turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Talks about those kinds. get there too. I'm not, my pages are not turning easily this morning. Chapter 10 and verse 13 says, no temptation. Remember when you see that word, what word can you substitute? Problem. No problem has seized you except what is common to man. Oh, woe is me. I'm the only one. This is happening only. This is never, this is Why did God do this to me? I'm the only one. No, the Bible says no. No problem ever comes into your life that is common just to you. But rather, it's common. But look what else it says. And he will not, and God, and God, always a good thing, and God is faithful. That means You can trust him, and he will not allow you to be tempted or have a problem beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted or given a problem, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. You see, the Bible says every one of us is tempted. Mark it down every day in every way, no matter where you go or what you do. You could lock yourself up in your closet at home, and the Bible says you will still be tempted, right? Because you took you into the closet, right? Count on it, the Bible says. You will have problems. Now, that leads to another question. Why? Why would God allow Christians, his children, to experience problems? That doesn't seem right, does it? I mean, he's a great big God, as we've sung about this morning. Why would he allow us who love him, sort of, most of the time maybe, to experience problems? You know, I get so tickled by believers who go around, Christians who go around trying to leave me with the impression that they don't have any problems. You know, that is totally unbiblical. There is not one verse of Scripture that will substantiate the idea, the claim, that a follower of Jesus is a person who doesn't have problems. In fact, as we're going to look at in a minute, Scripture does go on to say that if you're a follower of Jesus, you may actually have whole other sets of problems that those that don't know Jesus don't have, precisely because you are a believer. For example, turn to John 15. I'm going to go leaping through the Scriptures this morning. John 15. used to turn faster when I was younger. John 15, verse 18, says, 
If the world hates you, he's talking to those of us that know him. If the world hates you, that's the world, by the way. You know what the world is? That's a, I was telling somebody the other last week, that's a concept that as a younger believer, I had a really hard time for a long time getting my head around because it was just so amorphous, the world. But then somebody said, when you see that, translate it, the gang or the crowd out there. I did that, and it's like, oh, that makes sense. When the gang or the crowd out there who don't know Christ hate you, Jesus said, keep in mind that they hated me first. Now, that's a problem, by the way, when people hate you, isn't it? There's a problem. If you belong to the world, it would have loved you as its own. As it is, you don't belong to the gang and the crowd out there but I've chosen you to come out from among them, he says. See, there's a whole set. If you commit to following Jesus, that you commit that your life is going to bring honor and glory to him, that you are going to make much about him, the scripture is plain here. Jesus himself was plain that you're going to experience a new set of problems. There are people out there that are not going to like you. In fact, it's going to go beyond they don't like you. He uses the word hate. They're going to hate you. Why? Because you wear the family name. That's the only reason why. Because you wear the family name. And they will hate you because of that, Jesus said. And that's a problem. For us. But brothers and sisters, I will tell you, never be ashamed to wear his name because he wasn't ashamed to wear yours and mine when he went to the cross. Never be ashamed out in the crowd out there to be wearing his name. Secondly, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 gives us the second kind of problem. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 6, says, because the Lord disciplined... Well, let's jump back a little bit to verse 5. And have you forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as sons? My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those whom he whom he loves, and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Now, that is a terrible rendering by the New International Version of that text. The, the actual, the actual um, translation of the word punishes there is scourges, not punish. See, God does not punish his children. Why? Why doesn't God punish us when we do wrong? You need to let that sink in. Why? Say what? Because who took all of the punishment for our sin already? Jesus did, right? So there ain't any punishment left to take. But it does say that God will discipline you and me as any loving parent does 
Now, what's the difference between discipline and punishment? There is a difference. Even though the actions could be similar, what's different is the motive. The motive of punishment is to avenge wrong, right? To, to wreak justice upon a wrong. That's the motive of punishment. What's the motive of discipline? Love. The motive is love. To grow and to teach. Why does a parent discipline their child? Because they hate them and want to punish them and avenge wrongs? No, because they love them and they want them to grow and learn. That's why you discipline a child. That's why God disciplines us. And what this text is reminding us of is that if you're here this morning and you know Jesus and you're his follower, his word promises you that he is going to allow things into your life that will discipline you. There's a whole set of problems that are going to come into your life because you're following Jesus that he is intending out of his love to discipline you, to train you. That's what the word discipline means. To train you in what? To train you to be more like him. Why would God allow Christian to have problems? Number one, because we bear the family name. And number two, because he loves us and wants, us, wants to see the image of Christ formed in us. That's why. Third reason is found in Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. Paul's on a roll here, and we're kind of cutting in on him when he's on a roll. He's finishing a big thought. But in verse 10 he says, I want to know Christ. Everybody here say, Amen. Amen. Right? I want to know Christ. And I want to know the power of his resurrection. Amen. Amen. And then there's this last part. And I want to know the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. (laughs) Very few amens on that one, though. Not so quick to say amen to that last one, are we? The third reason why God allows a problem into our life is that we might come to share the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Now, what is that? That's one of those biblical terms that you can just get lost in because the language is up here. The fellowship of his sufferings. Here's what it is. Do you remember that Jesus, during his time here on earth, made many decisions, not just one, but many decisions to follow the Father's will, right? Can you think of just a couple? What's the biggest one? Where he said, yeah, to the cross, Father, not my will, but thy will be done. And when we make decisions like Christ to follow God's will in our lives, like Christ, we will experience problems. Sometimes problems that are like the cross. The cross was a big problem, you know? So those are the reasons why God allows problems into the life. If you've got problems going in your life this morning, it's okay. <laughs> the Bible says to expect them. 
There are problems in our lives here this morning because, number one, we've allowed our appetites and our lusts to run wild and let things come into our lives. And there are a whole different sets of problems that come into our lives because, precisely because we've decided to follow Christ. Because we have his name, because God wants to see Christ formed in us, and because when we choose to follow the will of the Father like Jesus did, we gain a fellowship with him that we'd never had before. Right? Think about that. Those that don't choose to follow the will of Christ, apart from perhaps not knowing him, also miss out on a fellowship with him. They miss out on knowing him the way. That's why you can look at some people and go, boy, they sure seem to know Jesus better than I. Well, it could be simply because they've, made, they've walked longer in choosing to follow God's will. And as a result of following God's will in their life, they've come into that fellowship with Christ where they do know him because they've had fellowship with him. They know deeply of him. It is vitally important to remember, brothers and sisters, you'll hear me say this again and again. As a believer, it is not a sin to have a problem. It's not a sin to have a problem. It's a sin to keep it. It's not a sin to have a problem. It's a sin to keep it. Well, what do I mean by keep it? To refuse to do about it what Christ says to do about it. To hold on to it. Because you see, the great problem solver, this is why it's different for those of us that know Christ, the great problem solver lives in you and in me. That's why it's a sin to keep it. We don't have to keep it. It's not a sin to have one. It's a sin to keep them. Why? Because problems, this is kind of a thesis of the series, problems are God's way of helping you and I grow up and mature in Christ. Problems are God's way of helping us grow up in Christ. It's not a sin to have them, it's a sin to keep them. Now, so that's the basic kind of overview of what the Bible says about problems. Okay, now the second thing we have to get a handle on before we dive in is the idea of biblical principles. Biblical principles. You see, this book is not just a book of rules and regulations, but rather it's a book of eternal truth and eternal principles. You see, the scripture says that everything that you and I can see when we cast our head around this morning, almost everything, will be gone. What are the only, there's only two things. When you look around this room and outside these windows, there's only two things that are going to pass into eternity. Everything else is going to burn up, the scripture says. Now, what, when you look around, what are the two things that are going to survive? People in the Bible. That's it. You all and this are the only two things that are going to last forever. Remember, forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. They're the only two eternal things apart from God are the Bible, his word, and those of us that know him. Will last. Webster defines a principle 
as a governing law of conduct. A governing law of conduct. It's a, it is something that an individual takes into his or her life that governs or guides the way they behave or conduct themselves. That's what a principle is. A biblical principle is a biblical governing law of conduct, an eternal truth that is supposed to govern our conduct. See, some people base their Christianity on one particular verse of the scripture or another, and there are certain verses in here that can be of great help to us, but you can't go through your life of walking with Christ proof texting one verse. That is to, you know, I, I live on this verse or that verse or whatever. As we grow in Christ and as we mature in Christ, he asks us to be in his word so that, and as we're in his word, we see that there are things that we need to be looking with that are repeated through here, that are, that are woven throughout the fabric of this book. There are things that are principles, governing laws of conduct for our lives that are woke. You don't find them in just one place here. They're all through the book. And we're supposed to be discovering those as we grow in Christ. Now, let me give you three quick characteristics about biblical principles so you'll know one when you find it. First, a biblical principle is timeless. It's timeless. It's not reserved for the 21st century, nor is it isolated to the first century or or the years before Christ. Examples. The biblical principle of love. It's timeless. It works just as well in the 21st century as it did in the time of Daniel. The principle of worship of the Lord. That works just as well now as it worked in the time of Joseph. The principle of prayer works now just as well as it did for Jesus and the disciples. They're not bound to any particular time. They are timeless. Second, a biblical principle is cultureless. It's cultureless. It isn't American, Canadian, Mexican, Asian, African. It's biblical. It's a biblical principle. That's why I can take this word of God into, as a missionary into any culture, in any age, and the principles found in this book will be applied to any person, any believer or non-believer, and it will help them approach and solve their problems in a manner that's pleasing to God. It's cultureless. It's not American. It's not Canadian. It's not Mexican, African, or Asian. It's biblical. Third, not only are they timeless and cultureless, but a biblical principle is also non-negotiable. It's non-negotiable. That is to say, it is not subject to personal adjustment. Now, you can argue with a biblical principle. You can get all upset about a biblical principle. You can even reject a biblical principle. But mark it down in your notes, you'll never change a biblical principle. You can reject it, but your rejecting it won't change it. You see, they're non-negotiable. They're not subject to personal adjustment. So here we are, 
truths about problems, truths about biblical principles. And over our next times together, as God gives us, I want to look at five. I want to unpack for you, not this morning, but five biblical principles that any believer can use at any time to approach and find the answers to the problems they're facing. I'm going to give you one just as a teaser this morning. The first one. Principle number one. Woving throughout the entire fabric of the scripture is this. If we're going to approach and solve our problems in a way that honors God and raises him up and magnifies him before others, the first principle is this. We have to decide to be honest. Decide to be honest. You see, no believer will ever be able to approach and solve his problems in the way that God intends until he first of all decides to be honest about the problem he's facing. God cannot help a dishonest believer the way he wants to. And the first question you and I have to face in this matter of problem solving is this. We have to ask ourselves, when we're looking at this problem that's getting the best of us, we have to ask this question. Am I willing to be honest? Honest to face my situation. And in the words of the 1970s ABC sportscaster Howard Cosell, tell it like it is. Tell it like it really is. Not like we wish it was. Not like we want it to be. But like it really is. Am I willing to be honest? Honest with myself. Oh boy, you know, it's, it's easy to not do that. Honest with the Lord. And honest with others around me. This principle is basic. And like I said, you don't just find it in one place. Let's take a quick trip. Turn to Romans 12. We're just going to go in order here, just so you see. This is, you don't find this in just one place in the scriptures. Romans 12. Romans 12, verse 17 says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of of everyone. See, it's not enough just to do right in your own eyes or to do right in the eyes of the Lord. You do what's right in the eyes of everyone. You live where things are right and honest and truthful. Turn over to 2 Corinthians. You go, Jim, that's a little vague. Well, let's get a little more specific. Turn a couple pages over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians and verse 2 rather Paul writes to the Corinthians we have renounced secret and shameful ways we do not use deception nor do we distort the word of God on the contrary by setting forth the truth we plainly commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God What's the saying? What's Paul saying to the Corinthians? When it comes to my dealings with other people, he said, I don't deal in falsehood. I don't deal in deception. I deal in truth as a believer and a follower of Christ. That's who we are. That's what we're to be about. We're supposed to first and foremost, amongst all of our things, we decide to be honest. 
Turn over to second, a couple pages to chapter 8, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2, or 21, rather, not 2, 21. Verse 21, Paul writes again, For we are taking pains to do what is right, not only in the eyes of the Lord, but also in the eyes of men. Again, it's not enough just to do right, to be honest with the Lord. Here the scripture is clear that we need to be honest with others around us. We are to live lives that are known by our honesty. At work, when people ask us to give an evaluation of another coworker, and they say, oh, this is anonymous. Why do they do that? Because I'll tell you, if you ask them why they do it, they'll tell you, oh, everybody knows you can't have honesty and truth at the same time. Really? Yes, if we don't give people anonymity, what? They won't tell us the truth. Unbelievable. As people who know Christ Jesus, we are to be people who speak the truth regardless of the consequences. And we shouldn't be writing things in reports that we're not willing to say directly to someone. If you're not willing to say it directly and be honest with them directly, you shouldn't write it down in secret. Paul says, I don't deal in secret. I don't deal in deception. I deal in truth. I've decided to be honest. Turn over a couple pages to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. See how this is, this is a recurring theme. This is not found in just one place. I, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. But we are, for we are all members of one body. We're to speak truthfully to each other. Turn over to Philippians 4. Just want you to see... Verse 8, finally, brothers, look at this long list of what we're supposed to be thinking about. But what's first on the list? Whatever is true, pure, noble, right, lovely, admirable, excellent, or worthy of praise. These are the things we think about. But the first thing on the list is truth. We have to decide to be honest. If that isn't plain enough, he gets a little more direct to the Colossians. Go to Colossians 3. You know, you go, oh, Paul, come on. Say it plainly. Okay. Chapter 3, verse 9. Stop lying to each other. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Jim, Paul. You mean Christians? would lie? <laughs> Apparently, that's what the scripture says. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't have had to tell the Colossians, stop it! Knock it off! Cut it out! You see, as Pastor John has been saying, each of us is a stinker. And when we're living in the stink and not allowing Christ to create the fragrance of Christ in our lives, and the stink is raining instead of the aroma of Christ, we'll lie because we stink. You see, each of us is a former liar and a potential liar. And we live in a culture where the little white lie is not only accepted, it's expected. But not so, says the word of God. 
And if you and I are ever going to solve the problems that are coming into our lives, the first thing we have to do, according to the scriptures, is to decide to be honest. There's a great example of this, the classic passage in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24, where Jesus said to the man who was bringing his gift to offer at the temple, he said, if you bring your gift, and while you're bringing your gift, you remember that you've wronged somebody. He said, what are you supposed to do? Well, just go on offering my gift. No, Jesus said, he's very direct. He said, leave your gift right there. Just drop it. Leave it right there. Go get right. Live right. Live in truth. Live in honesty. And then he says, and then come back and keep offering your gift. He doesn't say don't offer your gift. He just says, offer your gift in truth. Don't pretend things are right when they're not. Men and women, I want to tell you that when you put first things first, what is that? When you're facing a problem, putting first things first is deciding to be honest. And I want to tell you that in the 40 years I've known and followed Christ, I have found that most of my problems, probably 80%, are actually solved when I decide to be honest about the problem that I'm facing. And so an application this morning, it's this. Are you willing to be honest this morning? Are you willing to face up to such things as your attitudes, the way you look at your life, the way you look at the world out there, um, the way you conduct your life, um, your relationships with your family, with your spouse, with your parents, with your children, with your boyfriend or your girlfriend? Are you ready to face up and be honest about those things? Are you willing to be honest and admit the lusts and the appetites that are running wild in your life this morning? And are you willing, if this is the way it is, to admit to God and to yourself this morning that you're just dabbling in the Christian life, you're dabbling with Jesus, that you're not willing to really commit to him everything, your time, your treasure, your soul, everything, and going full on and full out for him. Well, until you do decide to be honest, you'll never find the solution to your problems. That's how important it is. There's a book that an author wrote in the 1970s called The Games People, People Play. And in the 1980s, another guy who had way too much time on his hands wrote a follow-up book called Games Christians Play. And one of the games Christians play is walking around, smiling, singing, looking very pious, saying all the right words, but inside being dishonest. Dishonest with themselves, dishonest with the Lord, and dishonest with others around them. God says in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. Do you want to bring delight to the heart of God this morning? Well, you can do that when you decide to be honest, because those who deal faithfully, truthfully, are his delight. You can bring delight to the heart of God when you decide to be honest with yourself, honest with him, and honest with others around you.
That's principle number one in how to solve a problem. Decide to be honest. And it's interesting that we wind up here this morning, which is a communion morning, because Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread and broke it. This is my body given to you. Eat this in remembrance of me. This is my blood shed for you for the remissions of sins and for many. Drink this cup and remember me. Why did God institute communion? Why did he tell us? He said because he wanted us to remember him. Why? Because it is so easy to go through your week and forget him. It is easy to go through your week Weak and become fallen over as a sheep in sin and to get lost. But the great thing about knowing Christ Jesus is you don't have to stay that way. You can, get, you can come to him and confess, Lord, I agree that what I did or said or thought was wrong. And I agree that you died on the cross and forgave it for me and I want to walk with you and commit my life to bringing honor and glory to you. That's what the table's about. It's to remind us that you're not supposed to walk apart from him. We're supposed to remember him and come to the table and be reminded that if there's something wrong in our lives, we get rid of it. We confess it and are done with it. And we remember again all that we have in Christ and we, we by faith, adopt that into our lives. And we leave here in newness of life. And Jesus knew we needed to do it often. That's why we do it often. Because we don't want time to go by where we're living in a sin that's not right and we're not doing the right thing about it. This is supposed to remind us to do the right thing. To be honest about it. To confess it. This is not a table of condemnation. This is a table of forgiveness. And it's open to anyone who will be honest about their relationship with the Lord. If you're here this morning and you don't know him, you can come know him. You can come say, Lord Jesus, I've been living my life for myself and on my own terms. And I want to accept you and accept your payment for my sins. For those of us that have done that and are following him in faith and know him, but who have struggled and perhaps are caught up in something, you can come, you can use this as an opportunity to be honest. It isn't, don't come. No, the issue is, come. But come in honesty. Come in honesty before the Lord, in your own heart with yourself, and before the rest of us. Come, but come in honesty. So before I have you come, when we come, I'm going to have you come up the center aisle, Take the elements and then go back down the side aisles and you'll take at your own uh, time. But use this as an opportunity to confront the things in your life that need to be confronted. To be honest about them. Because when you do, you're walking down the step, the pathway. You're taking that first step in finding the answers to the problems that you're facing. Let me pray, and then we'll have people come. Lord Jesus, thanks so much for the opportunity to be together this morning. And Lord, I pray that you would empower us with your dear Holy Spirit 
to be honest with you, honest with ourselves, and honest with others around us. Thank you, Jesus, that you died and gave your body to be brutalized so that we wouldn't bear that punishment. And thank you that you died and gave your blood so that we would have new life, free from the old life that could not honor you, could not follow you, and could not know you. But your blood gives us new life where all of those things can be true. And we remember that this morning and celebrate together. Amen.